Preaching my own, I can't hear myself. Are we good? All right. Well, what a great day to be together and rejoice in our senior adults. I saw the markers on the pews here in the middle. It says yesterday's youth, and I think next week when we when we get the youth back in here, we'll put tomorrow's trouble, um, <laughs> and uh, everything will be good. So, just kidding about our youth. I love our youth, and man, I love our youth pastor. Don't you love Steve? I'll tell you what. And Sean and Wendy, and we're blessed. And uh, Rodney Robertson did not act like a, a novice, a novice, did he? Wasn't that great? Your first time with him, Rodney. Good job. And, uh, you know, I kind of wept as I was sitting there because I have been moved by the conduct of two of these men. Two of them I don't know other than just meeting them. But I have watched the life of Link Lingenfelter and Rodney Robertson, and I want to tell you, I think we can hold them up as godly examples of men who are headed toward finishing well. Isn't that great? That's exciting. Um, I believe that Link got so close to heaven when he got sick this last time that if he'd have got any closer, you'd have had to knock the glory off of him when he was here. I mean, it was, uh, he was so sick, but while he was sick, I was there in the hospital with him, he was still making plans. He was still thinking about the future and what there was to come, and I enjoyed that. And uh, Rodney has taught me what a vow means. I've learned that from him. It's affected how I conduct myself in my own home. It's been good. Second uh, Timothy, join me there. Graying in godliness. We've heard that we should always be growing in godliness, but part of that process is the aging process, and there should be a graying in godliness. I think my first experience with aging and the reality of it came one day when Sherry and I were shopping in Lowe's, and we were looking for some things for our home, and a young man came up and said, Sir, can I help you and your daughter? <laughs> and uh, I said, evidently this process of aging is beginning to catch up with me and beginning to show on me. Chuck Swindoll tells the story of a tombstone. I've not been able to ever locate a photo of it, but he tells the story of a tombstone that kind of summarizes the danger of aging. And that tombstone had three dates on it. Uh, first, it said born, and it was something like uh, 1921. And then it said died, 1965. And then it said buried, 1995. There's a danger of dying at midlife and not finishing well. And I don't know any men who could have stood before us and more testified, especially through the particular song, as long as I have voice. What's the rest of that line? As long as I have voice, I'm going to sing. Is that how it finished? I'm going to sing. Um, I think that needs to be the testimony of every single senior adult. As long as I have voice, I'm going to testify to Jesus, and I'm going to give him glory and praise. Let's Look at how the Apostle Paul finished and how he was growing and graying in godliness. I don't know if you've thought about it, but it's likely, and we're pretty sure, that 2 Timothy is the last thing that Paul wrote that we have record of. Anything else he might have written, we don't have record of, and so we think that it's the words of a man 
at the very end. In fact, he describes that end very well in verse 6 of 2 Timothy 4. Join me there. What does it say? It says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now, the idea of being poured out of a drink offer as a drink offering is a very vivid picture that went along with the kind of death Paul anticipated he was going to die and an act of worship. When the sacrifices were being offered, as the whole burnt offering was offered, the lamb or the bullock or the goat was on and the fire had been set, the last thing that the worshiper would do would be to pour a drink offering of wine upon the sacrifice. And it sort of was, as, the, as the, the wine was vaporized, there would be a smoke that would go up. And there's this picture of this red wine being poured over the sacrifice. And Paul anticipated that he was going to be beheaded. And he's actually giving a picture that he is going to finish in a way and knows that his death is imminent, and they're going to cut his head off, and the blood is going to be let from his body, and he says, do you know what? My dying act will be to pour myself out for Jesus. He knew his time was near. And I believe he teaches us here three things that we can use to be graying in godliness as we move from wherever we are, and especially as those who have passed maybe 50, feeling it like I have, some of you 60, some of you 70, some of you 80, and even some of you who are here past 90, and you have that sense that your departure may be nigh. Paul teaches us three things. First, here's what he teaches us. We should live until we die. Now, I know that sounds silly, but that's, this is important. The, the man whose tombstone said, born 21, died 65, buried 95, says halfway through his life, or two-thirds of the way through his life, somehow he just gave up, he quit, he threw in the towel, and he just coasted, and essentially wasted those last 30 years. Paul is a man who chose to live until he died. He's in prison. He's suffering greatly. And yet here he is writing to Timothy, encouraging. What are the dangers that come upon us that may cause us to not follow through and live until we die? What kind of things creep into our lives that cause us somewhere along the way to just sort of stop living and start coasting? Or to stop living and to start maybe decaying before it's time? I think one of the things is the disappointments that we experience with people in our lives. Any of us who've amassed any number of years are alarmed at the people who have disappointed us. Look at Paul's disappointments. If you go back to chapter 1, 
Look at what happened. He says in chapter 1, verse 15, he's being put on trial. And what happens in verse 15 of chapter 1? You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelius and Hermogenes. What happened? When Paul's preaching came under extreme pressure and persecution, a great number of the people who had attended church, who had ministered to him, who had ministered with him, simply left him. So much so that if you'll go to chapter 4, read what happens all the way down at verse 16. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. One of the things that happens as we age is that we go through a number of failed and broken relationships. People who at one point in our life seem really close, really reliable, really intimate with us. And we have this wonderful relationship and then something breaks, something happens and they leave us and there is the potential at that moment for bitterness to set in. When loneliness begins to creep in and distance from those that we have been close to seems to increase and it happens more and more the older we get, all of a sudden there's this potential for bitterness because of those who've separated from us. They've forsaken us. They've left us. They don't call anymore. They don't visit. They don't write. They don't email. They show no interest. And we feel lonely. Paul mentions another disappointment in people. If you look in verse 9, he says, Make every effort to come to me. He's telling Timothy, Come see me. When you become a senior adult and you begin to grow lonely and that isolation and separation begins to happen, one of the things that you'll find yourself doing is inviting people to come and see. Would you come by? One of the things I love to do is stop in and visit with senior adults and they simply say, I'm so glad you're here. Not everybody's glad when I'm there. But senior adults, shut-ins especially, they're just glad when you're there. And so they welcome you. And, they, and so here's Paul writing to Timothy so Precious to him, he says, hey, would you come see me? Because look what happened. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Evidently, Demas was a partner, an assistant, somebody close to him that was serving him in prison, helping him, bringing him things, ministering to him, and he just cuts out. And so here he is alone and isolated, and he's disappointed in the people, and not only the ones who were close to him, but look in verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. There's not just friends who desert you, there's enemies who will just hurt you. There are people along the way that will take a shot at you. And as you age, the potential for becoming bitter from those shots increases when loneliness and isolation and health issues, all of those things start setting in. There's a potential for bitterness in our disappointment with people, those close and those who are even at odds with us. Paul 
doesn't let that happen. We'll see what he does. There's also the potential for dissatisfaction with the place that you find yourself as you get older. The place. Where is he? He's in prison. Here's a faithful servant. In fact, scripturally, we probably have no example of a more faithful servant than Paul. Of course, I put Jesus in a whole other category, so I'm not comparing him to Jesus. Jesus is the the glory of all perfection. But those born with a sin nature of Adam's seed, this Paul is the prime example. And here is his finishing place. Not a nice home. Not a retirement center. No comforts. He finds himself at the end of his journey in a dissatisfying place. He's in prison. He's in a jail cell. He's in chains. As we age, the potential for coming to a place that is dissatisfying grows. Sometimes it's a house by ourselves with few visitors. Sometimes it's a hospital. Sometimes it's a nursing home. Sometimes it's a bed that we cannot get out of or a wheelchair we're confined to. As the aging process goes on, there is the potential for bitterness to set in, not just because of the disappointment of people, but because of the dissatisfaction of the place. Funds are sometimes tight. Relationships are few. One of the things that my mom used to say is, Bart, the hardest thing for me is all my friends are already in heaven. As she aged, And her friends began dying and going to heaven. It just broke her because she had less and less and less of the circle she once had. And it was very dissatisfying to be in that place. Here is Paul with no freedom to roam, no freedom to go. Before he had roamed the world and told of Jesus. And now he's confined to this one place with chains, without hope of escape. He knew that his ending would not be good, that it would be this offering, this beheading, this being poured out. And so there's that potential of loneliness and loss of independence. Here's Paul having to ask for a coat, having to ask for a visit, having to ask for some books, having to ask, ask, ask. He's lost his independence and he's become very dependent and it's very hard But he does not allow that to embitter him. There's also the disappointment of loss of productivity when we can't do what we used to do. I don't know about you, but what I've noticed in aging is that the strength of gravity has increased every year I've been alive. I was walking up some hills and riding up some hills and climbing some stairs while we were on vacation. And I thought, you know, I've been coming to this place for 30 years, the place we went on vacation to, and it didn't seem like these stairs were this tall, this hill was this hard, this walk was this difficult. So I've got a theory that gravity actually has been increasing in the last 30 years, and that's what's going on with me. I don't know. I'll need to study that. But the loss of productivity, Paul, who before could go and preach and go here, there, 
and write at will and send and call and do mission trips and go to Ephesus and go to Thessalonica and go to Rome. Paul, who could do all those now, his productivity is down to, well, it's not what it was. And a lot of us struggle. And then there is the pain of life. I don't know if you've thought through Paul's physical condition, but if you read through his resume in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, this is what Paul had experienced physically. In far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and a day have I spent floating in the sea. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers from the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold, and exposure. Paul is listing all of the pains of his life, and those things can amass and begin to pull us down. The things that we've experienced that were physically demanding, physically um, uh, harming, that we can experience, and they begin to build up, and the result ends up being that we're bitter with the people, bitter with the place, bitter with the productivity, and bitter with the pain. And that's the temptation that's out there for any of us as we age and as these changes take place. But what does Paul do? Instead of being bitter, what is he found doing? He's planning. Send Mark. Send me a coat. Send me some books. I've got work to do. I'm limited to this place, but I am planning. In chapter 1, it says he's praying. He's giving thanks to God, and he's asking for his blessings. He's preparing his letter of 2 Timothy. What is it? It's a letter of preparation to Timothy for what Timothy's going to face. What else is Paul doing? He's preparing himself for heaven. He's longing and growing in his desire to be there. And he's praising chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Tell us, the Lord was with me. He strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So he's planning. He's praying. He's preparing others for their future, himself for his future, and he is praising God for his life. So Paul, rather than being embittered by all of the things he had been through, he forgives those that deserted him. He says, may the Lord not hold it against him. And the ones who planned against him, Alexander, he says, you know, I don't have to be bitter with him. God's going to take care of him. And so what he's able to do is navigate so that here's what he does. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to live until I die. I'm not stopping somewhere along the way and giving up. And that's why I was so impressed with that song. As long as I've got voice, I'm going to sing. Number two, here's what Paul does. Second thing he teaches us, leave no doubt. As a pastor, I've done a lot of funerals. 
I don't enjoy doing funerals. Occasionally, there is a certain joy to funerals because those who've longed to be with Jesus and have communicated that so clearly and have said, oh, please, Lord, come and get me, there's a certain joy to the knowledge of their arrival. But funerals are difficult things. But the most difficult thing I ever face at any funeral is when a person departs and leaves doubt. There's doubt about where they're going. Their kids are faced with that doubt. Their grandkids are faced with that doubt. Their friends are faced with that doubt. Instead of standing in the front of the coffin and, and, and very joyfully saying, Oh, yeah, you know, they are in such a, they're in the glory of the Lord. There's this hesitancy. I hope they had made peace with God. I think they were a Christian. I, I really desire that, that they be with the Lord. But there's this, what does Paul say? He's on his way out. Look at how he says it. He says it three ways. Look in verse 7, chapter 4. I fought the good fight. When you spend your life fighting the devil rather than people, folks will know where you're headed. And here's what's wrong in most churches in general but it seems like Baptists have a corner on this. We spend way too much time fighting each other and way too little time fighting the devil. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. One of the ways that Paul makes clear where he's going, one of the ways he communicates and leaves no doubt, is what he spent his time doing with his life. He didn't fight people. He fought the devil. He wasn't always fighting against something. He was always fighting for something. He was fighting for the gospel to be proclaimed to every human being. He left no doubt. The second way he leaves, no doubt, is it says, I have finished the course. I didn't quit halfway. I wasn't in mid-run. Listen, I have friends right now that I have doubt about where they're going. At some journey, some place in their walk, they just stopped. They seem to be walking with Jesus, and then all of a sudden, it's like they just went, Psh. and if they go now, into eternity, I have serious doubts about them. So do their families, their parents, their children. It's really scary when somebody quits mid-course. Paul says, I stayed on track all the way to the end. I am finishing well. Not an idea that he's earned his salvation. That's not what he's saying. It's just that his salvation has changed him and brought him through. And he gives one more statement. He says, I've kept the faith. My testimony is true. He tells his testimony several times of how he came to Jesus. Senior adults, when you heard those children, they were all talking about the closest senior adult to them. That was 
Annetta, that was pretty amazing. Where are you, Annetta? I think she may have gone out. That was pretty amazing in itself, that their favorite senior adults are grandparents. Senior adults, give your personal testimony of salvation to your children and grandchildren. Specifically sit down and look them in the eye because they're listening. Even though that one child said they're trying to make me mature and I'm not listening, some of that stuff comes back to help them later, right? Remember some of the advice we learned when we were young? It didn't kick in until we were about 30 and we said, but that made perfect sense. Well, sit down with your grandchildren and let them hear a verbal testimony of your salvation and tell them how they can be saved and make sure that you know that they're saved. Paul says, I've kept the faith. I'm, I'm clear on this. I've made it clear. I've given my testimony, and I've, I've called for the testimonies of others, both by word and by deed, and so he's kept the faith. So here's what Paul does. He says, look, here's how we do it. We live until we die. Don't quit. We leave no doubt. We Fight the devil and fight for evangelism and global missions and the salvation of our families. We fight that and not each other. And we keep the faith. And we finish the course. But I think there's one more component that Paul has here. And it's love where you're going. Paul loved where he was going so much that he was having a wrestling match about his prayers. When he was in jail in Philippi and there was a possibility of his execution coming there, he tells, excuse me, in Ephesus, and he's writing to Philippi, here's what he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Only a guy that loves where he's going can say that. He loves his destination. He loves where he's headed. He's excited about heaven. He's joyful about it. Why? Well, he says here, but if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ. Think about that. Loving Jesus so much that you become ambivalent about staying here. We live in a world that is obsessed with staying here. Very, very taken in with the idea of fighting death every way that you can. And I'm all for life. I think it's great. But I think one of the marks of a person who is at peace in their walk is a certain ambivalence that starts drawing them to where their greatest love is. Paul says, Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. So there's Paul's picture of the desire to be with Jesus. He's not enamored with death itself. He's not morbid. He's not a, a follower of a movement that says, it, let's, let's all take our lives. It's nothing like that. He loves life and he seizes it. That's why he's going to live all the way until he's dying. But what does he do here? He loves his destination. He loves where he's going. In the spring of 1984, I fell in love with a certain place. 
It's a two-story house. That house uh, had this fantastic fireplace, a wonderful kitchen table, five bedrooms, incredible house. I loved going to that house. It sat on 11 acres of property in the wooded mountains of North Georgia, stream running through the property. It had motorcycle riding and all kinds of fun things to do. I spent much of my time from spring of 1984 until the summer of 1985 wanting to be there. In fact, when I would get off work on Friday, I would either with a borrowed car or until I got my vehicle repaired, I would make my way to that house and I would stay from Friday evening until late, late on Sunday evening. And I loved going to that house. But there was a reason I loved going to that house. It had nothing to do with the five bedrooms, which was a great big house, or the warm fireplace. It had nothing to do with the 11 acres and the wooded, beautiful North Georgia hillside, or the stream that ran through it, or the motorcycle. It had nothing to do with any of those things. I fell in love with that house because it's where Sherry lived. And what drew me every weekend, the house was nice. The woods were beautiful. The creek was refreshing. Motorcycle was fun. But none of those things drew me. They were all what we Louisianans call lanyap. What drew me was a person who lived there, who I met in the spring of 1984. Her name's Sherry. And I was drawn to go and be there and I did every chance that I could for that entire year and a few months with joy, with hope. And I loved nothing more than driving up that little driveway on Friday evening and standing at the door with a really wonderfully cooked meal with Sherry and her family waiting on me to arrive. And she would hug me and welcome me in and I would sit at their table and I would just look at her. I just look at her. She's the prettiest thing I'd ever seen. And I'd hold her hand and I'd hug her neck and we'd walk in the woods. And what made that place wonderful had nothing to do with all of those pieces of things. It had to do with this one relationship. I believe that that's how believers ought to be thinking about heaven. I think that's it. I think that's it. And I think that heaven, I'm going to quote Adrian Rogers, heaven without Jesus is simply gold-plated hell. Because there is nothing there worth having without Jesus. Paul loved his destination because of who he was going to see. And so he gives us three things. Live until we die. Leave no doubt. And love our destination because of who we're going to see. Now hear me carefully. It's not 
a guarantee that we're all going there. Something has to happen. There has to be a moment in our lives where we see our sinfulness, recognize it, repent of it, and place our faith in the reality that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died as our substitute, and was raised from the dead. And when we personally place our faith with Him, we are guaranteed entrance into this kingdom. My uncle, Doug, was a mean man. Anyone who knew him could attest to that. He had gotten into his 60s. He was in his senior years. He had no regard for God, for Christ, for church, for anything wholesome or good. But my mom had continued to witness to my Uncle Doug for years and years and years. And finally, after years and years and years of witnessing to my Uncle Doug, in his graying years, in his 60s, my Uncle Doug repented of his sins and received Jesus as his Savior and was wonderfully and miraculously changed. But something happened to him. In that moment of change, he became broken. All of the bitterness was washed away. The wrath was washed away. He was a changed man, but he began to look back across his course and he began to say something that John Piper made famous in his book. And the book is called Don't Waste Your Life. My Uncle Doug began to say, I've wasted my life. I've wasted my life. I can look back on all of it and tears pouring from his face. I've wasted my life. But listen carefully. Listen. With Jesus, you don't have to waste your future. It does not matter how old you are or where you've been. If you will come to Jesus today, no matter what you've wasted in the past, you will not waste your future. He will take you and use you today for His glory and your joy and will promise you a glorious eternity. So no one who's here today is beyond His reach or beyond His love or beyond His call. Would you bow with me and I want you to consider, regardless of what you've wasted in the past, don't waste your future. You can give your life now to living until you die. You can give your life now to leaving, no doubt. And you can give your life right now, this moment, to loving your destination. And how do we do that? With Jesus. I want to encourage you, even now. You may have gray hair. You may be my, like my Uncle Doug. You may have a lot of water under the bridge that you can't undo and you're really sorry for. But Jesus wants to save you. And he wants to give you a hope and a future and grace. Whether you're a child, a youth, a young adult, middle years, or a senior adult, Jesus Christ loves you. And he pleads earnestly with you to come to him so that you can live until you die, you can leave no doubt, and you can love your destination. Would you? Trust Him now. You say, Pastor Bart, what do I do? Well, you can talk to Him. You can say with me, God, you and I both know that I've sinned. And I'm sorry. I want to know this forgiveness. 
that Jesus offers. I believe he died for my sins, that he is God in the flesh, that he is the Savior of the world, and that he is the King of kings. And I give my life to Jesus now. I trust him. Save me, God. The Bible says that if you call upon him in prayer, that you won't be disappointed. In fact, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you do that now? And ask him to save you. And then take the next step of proclaiming that to everyone, leaving no doubt so that everyone would know that you followed him and then follow him in believer's baptism. I invite you, would you stand as God works in your heart today? Would you come?